Welcome to Zero Sum Empire, the podcast that's taking a critical census of the roughly 640 mostly anonymous American billionaires. Good intro, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, everyone. We apologize for kind of dipping off of the radar, off of the map for like a month. We realize that that's not what super professional podcasters do. No. But we actually <laughs> aren't that. <laughs> and also, we have full-time jobs that sometimes just kind of require our uh, attention. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of crunch time um, as far as that goes. And But the weird thing is we're coming back for episode 20, uh, but... We're coming back and then taking a break for the holidays. And it's going to be kind of a long, like uncertain length of a holiday break. Do you want to tell them why? One one reason why is because, well, you want to tell them why? Uh, Joe's going to be a dad. <laughs> you're talking You're talking to me like I'm a baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. Um, yeah. I'm excited for your little baby. Um, no, it's exciting. Yeah, it's going to happen any minute, and we're going to take a few weeks while I adjust to being a dad, and then we'll come back in 2020 with season two of Zero Sum Empire, which we're really excited about, and we have a lot of ideas for, and um, hopefully we'll be able to come back strong and fierce as ever. Yeah. I'm not becoming a dad, so I'm, I'm going to work on just tweeting a lot, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that seems good. <laughs> um. Okay, so any other updates before we talk about billionaires in the news this week, or is now the time to do that? Let's do the news. Billionaires in the news. All right, uh, so what we thought we would do for this very special episode of Zero Sum Empire, uh, episode 20, in case we haven't mentioned that already, is to revisit some of the billionaires that we've covered so far. Uh, to see if they've been in the news. This is a callback episode for Zero Sum Empire loyalists. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I set up a Google alert for all of the billionaires that we covered. And so I, I try to keep up with the uh, things that have been happening in their lives. And so I thought we'd run through some of the more interesting stories. Um, uh, not really any positive stories, a lot of bad stuff. Um, the first one, one of our very earliest ones, I think back in episode two or three, we covered Vinod Koshla. Um, you know, I'll just interject. Like we didn't, we still don't know what we're doing. We definitely didn't know what we were doing then. But that was one of the better earlier episodes. Yeah, in my humble opinion. He's just like such a prick. Yeah. Um. I yeah. I mean, it's really funny. Like I was thinking about it today, and I don't think I realized it at the time. But like he is. So in case you uh, uh, didn't listen to that episode or don't know what's going on with Vinod Koshla, he's a Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalist uh, tech guy. Uh, founder of Sun Microsystems, uh, but uh, the the news story that we talked about uh, and that he's in the news again for for is that he has been uh, defying the California Coastal Act, which guarantees uh, beach access to all citizens of California, well, just to all citizens uh, or to anybody uh, for. 11 years now. He's been fighting this thing tooth and nail. Tooth and nail against a ragtag band of surfers. 
Um, so he's like, he's literally like the old guy in the skiing movie, right? Uh, who's trying to shut down the resort. Like he's really, he's actually shutting down the resort. I mean, when, in the episode we covered him on, we talked about kind of a deeper issue of, uh, part of the billionaire mindset, just being like, just believing that, uh, you can kind of seize pieces of the, the commons and, and he's kind of doing this, you know, uh, primary accumulation operations. So he just he just won a legal battle, right? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, things are not looking good for the surfers. Uh, and the the issue is that to get to the beach, Martin's Beach in in California, you have to pass through Vinod Koshla's land that he bought in two thousand and eight, and. Uh, you know, whoever owned it before, I don't know who that was. There was always an agreement that they would allow people to go to the public beach, right? Like that, that you could walk down this road and or drive down this road and go to the beach. Uh, the the judge, for whatever reason, decided that Vinod Koshla owned the road and he could close it down. He could continue to have surfers arrested who he found on his land. So, so this is after he lost a bunch of like appeals, but now it's going to be appealed again. Yeah. And who knows what's going to happen? Yeah. Uh, One article I read said that the stage is set for a showdown between the surfers and old man Kosla. Um, It didn't say old man Kosla, but I think that I think we should plan with a new baby. We should plan a summer vacation to Martins Beach, California. And and uh, go uh, walk down Vinod Kosla's private road. That sounds like a great idea. Okay, what else in the news? Um. Oh, we got Scott Simplot. You remember Simplot? Oh, the potato man. Yeah, they make all the potatoes for McDonald's french fries. Well, uh, the thing that we talked about with him is uh, that Simplot was a really bad polluter, is a really bad polluter. They, If you remember, the, the famous story is the two-headed trout uh, that uh, uh, was in the news, um, uh, you know, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Uh, because of uh, selenium pollution that, you know, causes weird mutations in fish. He, uh, I think just last week, actually uh, got approved for uh, a new phosphate mine, uh, which are the precise uh, types of mines that were polluting rivers with selenium that he got in trouble for or that his company got in trouble for before. It's 4.3 square miles and we'll have five open pits and we'll produce phosphate for the next 30 years. Uh, so it's just a, it's just amazing. It's yeah. It's like proceed Simplot. Yeah. Go on, are, like, sir. <laughs> well, the, you know, uh, uh, in their defense, uh, they did uh, promise that they're not going to pollute the water this time. Uh, they promised to be very oh. careful. And well, that's, um, yeah. That's that's encouraging. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, next to the news, we got Abigail Johnson from Fidelity Investments. She, uh, I think, was the first female billionaire that we covered. And when we talked about Abigail Johnson, we talked mostly about Fidelity Charitable, uh, which is a donor-advised fund. It's the largest charitable giver in the United States, even though it turns out they don't really give all of the money uh, that they count as donations to charitable organizations or to needy causes. They just sort of end up giving a lot of the money to other donor advised funds and this kind of like shell game where they they move money around. Anyway, one of the things about donor advised funds that we talked about was that uh, rich people can put money into a donor advised fund and then advise the donor advised fund who to give the money to uh, in a completely anonymous way. Uh, and we and we worried, as, as other people who have written about this worry, uh, that that would facilitate 
rich people giving to causes that they didn't want people to know uh, that they were giving to. Uh, turns out that happened. Um, <laughs> Fidelity Charitable, uh, it was found out, was sending money to white supremacists. Specifically, they are funding the New Century Foundation, which is the white supremacist organization behind American Renaissance. Uh, you may have seen their flyers if you work on a college campus. Uh, the uh, the guy whose name has been in the news, it's associated with him most, is Jared Taylor. Um, so they, they've given over a hundred thousand uh, dollars in church, so-called charitable donations, uh, to this to white, su- white supremacist. Yes. Yeah. Deeply, deeply troubling. It is. And, uh, you know, as from what I understand, there's no way to sort of on the other end to, there's no way to reverse engineer the charitable giving to find out who directed Fidelity Charitable to give that money to the white supremacists, right? Like it was some person with a do- who put money into the donor advised fund. We don't know who it is. Uh, so that's the problem with it. Who else do we have here? Oh, we got we got (laughs) we got Sumner Redstone. I mean, I really don't have much to say about this other than that, like his decades long feud with his daughter is still happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, he's trying in the wake, I think, of Disney's massive consolidation of the media, uh, global media market. uh, Other media companies are trying to consolidate as well. And so Sumner Redstone rejoined Viacom and CBS. They remerged last week. Um, so I don't, I don't really have anything to say about that other than, you know, we can kind of keep our eye on it. And Disney is taking over the world. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? Like, it seems like they own everything now. Yeah. John Doerr, uh, another Silicon Valley venture capitalist, uh, he's in the news for investing in a, uh, in a place called Zoom Pizza. You might wonder why uh, a venture capitalist, uh, would invest in a pizza place it's because uh, Zoom Pizza does um, uh, uses robots in some way, or they say they use robots in some way to make the pizza. Robot chefs. Well, okay. So the business model, and, and apparently they have their fingers in a lot of pies. Uh, uh, excuse the pun. Uh, they have a sort of like food truck. I, I don't think there are robots involved. Uh, the long and short of it is. Uh, so like they have a bunch of, it's only in San Francisco. They have some food trucks stationed around the city and you call in an order and they start driving toward your house as they make the pizza, right? So like it gets there really quickly. So the time that it takes the pizza to be made is the time, uh, you know, the, so it just cuts, the so that's the, it just cu- cuts like you get minutes marginally faster delivery. pizza and probably right. um, marginally warmer. Yeah, I guess so. Like, yeah. Um, But I I guess they also claim that robots are making the pizza. I don't really understand that part. Uh, But the other the biggest investor in Zoom is SoftBank, uh, who is uh, famous for making a bunch of dumb investments like uh, Uber and WeWork. Uh, It's important to note here that Doerr is not investing his own money. I'm sorry, he is investing his own money. Uh, he is not investing the money of uh, Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital company that he uh, works for, uh, I'm assuming because- uh, They're like, that's a bad bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's my guess. Um, Who knows? Who knows? He could be getting the last laugh. Another short one. Uh, um, well, we got two more here. Um, one is really quick. Uh, Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, who you remember, the billionaire hedge fund manager. Yep. Uh, he's, you know, sort of one of the most famous kind of investing minds in the United States. Just to remind our listeners, he had like 
very, very heavyweight, impressive rates of returns in his hedge fund management for yeah. years and years. So uh, Druckenmiller, he told, um, I think it was uh, Bloomberg, that uh, he sold nearly all of his investments and put his money into treasuries after uh, Donald Trump tweeted uh, about the U.S.-China trade dispute. Uh, so Drucken, here's a quote from Stanley Druckenmiller, uh, quote, when the Trump tweet went out, I went from 93% invested to net flat and uh, bought a bunch of treasuries, <laughs> not because I'm trying to make money. I just don't want to play in this environment. <laughs> so he completely divested from the stock market in general uh, because that is of pretty a amazing. Trump tweet. That like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the most successful investor of all time is like, oh, I'm not investing in this <laughs> in this landscape. Yeah, I mean, well, if he if he believes that like he has some sort of insight into how the market is is uh, working and where it's going to go, like uh, he invests when he thinks things are predictable, right? Like, and Donald Trump is, uh, you know, chaotic evil, right? Like he just throws this insane uh, random factor into everything that he does. Yeah. The last one I want to talk about is uh, is one of Joe's favorites. I know Ross Perot Jr. Oh yeah. Um, so he, you know, uh, he. Uh, one of the things we talked about. He's a big helicopter guy. Uh, first guy to circumnavigate the world in a helicopter, uh, even though. Unlike in an airplane, you, you're allowed to land, I guess, as many times as you want. Still doesn't make sense to me. Uh, but he is one of the, the billionaires, like, uh, I think it's Larry Page is another one, uh, who is very into flying cars. In fact, a few weeks ago, held a big flying car conference with all of the, the greatest minds in the field of flying cars uh, on his ranch in Texas. And um, I want to play just a quick clip. Of, of Ross Perot Jr. talking about the future uh, where we will have flying cars. Okay. Maybe it used to take an hour for a commute. In an air taxi, it'll be 10 minutes. So you could go two to three hours out by car and still have a 30-minute commute into work. So the smaller cities around the large towns are going to do better. So it's a real change in global lifestyle. <laughs> I just think it's like incredibly weird uh, that uh, he thinks that everyone is going to own a flying car. I mean, these things get uh, like I don't know uh, a quarter mile a gallon of gas, right? Like the uh, they look like big drones, you know, like the little drones that people fly around. They look like really big ones of those, so they're not like jetpacks. They're like it's like a small helicopter. It's really like a small helicopter. So, I, 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 it's just difficult to imagine a world that is going to support. 200 million flying cars. <laughs> it's a crazy fantasy. <laughs> All right. Uh, time to do the first billionaire for the day. Joe, who do you got? I forget already. Yep. Today I have John Menard Jr. Oh, how do, how could I forget? Menards. Yep. Owner of Menards. So if you don't know what a Menards is, that means you've never lived in the Midwest. It's one of the defining symbols that divides flyover country from the coasts. <laughs> do you remember when you learned about Menards? Yeah, I do. I, I, I mean, I don't remember the specific, you know, moment that I learned it. It's not like, uh, you know, 9-11. I don't remember. <laughs> um, like the exact moment, but I, I, I remember like the period of my life. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's like a Home Depot or Lowe's kind of place, right? Yep, that's right. But if you haven't spent a portion of your life in the Midwest, you may not have ever heard of it. You probably have never heard of it. I had never heard of it until I moved I had out either. Here. Yeah. But now and, uh, it's jingle will never leave my brain. And let's uh, not do it. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll throw in a clip later. Okay. Today, John Menard Jr. is the richest man in Wisconsin. And here's the thing that I'm sort of tangling with. I live in Wisconsin, and I didn't realize until I began preparing this episode that he is, in fact, the richest man in the state. I'm just wondering, like, what does that mean? Like, does, well, does that make me, I mean, should I know that? Like, do you know who the richest person in Minnesota is? No, I don't. I'm not sure if it is one of the Cargills or not, but I, I don't know. Uh, but and that's my point. Like, why do we not know this basic information? Nobody does, right? Like, uh, I mean, one, they try to stay out of the news, right? Like that, uh, and you know, not all of them. I mean, you got, you know, Ken Langone from uh, Home Depot. Some billionaires love being in the news, right? But right. most well, we rich talk about people, this all the time. yeah, I mean, this is sort of the premise but, like, of the show. The richest person in every state. I mean, people should learn this in school. We should <laughs> learn the names of these people. Right. We should be able to recite them. I mean, think about the names yeah. of people that we're forced to learn. I know. know, Yeah. People who led battles like over a century ago. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. We should be learning the names of like the three or four people in every state who are unelected uh, and incredibly rich. Who control our immediate surroundings. Right. 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 Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who who basically uh, run the area in which we live. I mean, dude, we've been doing this show for a year and I still didn't look up to be like, who's the richest man in Wisconsin? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, John Menard Jr. Yeah. That's a Gemini at work. I guess that's right. So, uh, Chad, I know that you've been to Menards. I I was wondering if you could explain to the listeners your experience of entering a Menards and being inside a Menards. What can you just describe some things about it? I mean, I uh, listen, I don't I don't know anything about John Menard. I did know that he was a scumbag. I didn't know that he was the uh, richest person in Wisconsin. I, but I'm asking you about the store. Well, no, I, I'm getting there. Uh, uh, I go there a lot um, because I avoid Home Depot uh, because uh, uh, Ken Langone uh, is a person who I am familiar with because uh, he is in the news and on television and and uh, all the time. And I hate Menards him. Menards is not better. The thesis of this show, <laughs> this segment, is Menards is in no way an acceptable I don't, alternative. What, what happens when my sink breaks now? Like I, you know, like I, I don't know what to do. We don't have I a don't Lowe's. Know, man. Is Lowe's? Well, dude, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe you got to do some other thing with your life. Yeah, I'm never, I'm never shopping at Menards again. Wow, I am getting ahead of myself. So my experience, uh, what what stands out to me is that they have a tiny grocery section that's like four aisles, like four mini aisles. It's like the inside of a convenience store inside of a Menards, uh, and they yeah they have like pet food for some reason and like. And soup. And a bunch of right? food that you don't really want. Yeah, to eat. it's really weird. Now, I know exactly what you're talking about, but that's that's sort of a slightly off-topic detail. The 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 main detail that I was fishing for were, are the, the turnstiles. The turnstiles, yeah. That you have to go through as soon as you enter any Menards that, that effectively lock you in to the store so that, like, you have to go all around the big box store 
to checkout in order to yeah. negotiate your exit. And a lot of, a lot of stores have like uh, little ways that they encourage that that kind of behavior, right? Like don't don't this exit is an through aggressive. The yeah, they <laughs> there are there are one way doors, right? Like it's a kind of little yeah, it's like a one way door. Maxwell's demon uh, sort of thing, and and <laughs> uh, well, like, yeah, and so it's, it's like sorting. If, you know, <laughs> it was the first thing that I noticed when I went into a Menards for the first time. I was like, what is it? This? Is weird. Kind of lame. I thought they were just you know? counting. This isn't people. like inviting. No, it's, it's not it's, inviting. You know, you, <laughs> no, I mean, I think the takeaway though with the turnstile styles is that you can actually kind of read something into that. You can learn something essential about John Menard Jr.'s character oh, interesting. from the way that he organizes his, his security um, because he's a notorious micromanager and a notorious penny pincher and is, um, you know, going to do whatever he can to protect John Menard Jr.'s bottom line. Yeah. And he does so aggressively in a way that is like, I think oftentimes toxic as we will learn about here in some examples. So there's, there's so much information out there about him. I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> there's uh, a little bit of everything that you might expect from a billionaire of his stature, proof of environmental violations. There's tax evasions. There's uh, at least one significant accusation of sexual misconduct. There's convincing evidence that Menards is a controlling and oppressive workplace. He's a former IndyCar racing team owner. His son is a race car driver. Mm, cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty sweet. He used to be buddies with Trump, but that friendship exploded and I'll explain <laughs> that later. Wait a second. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, he... Uh, secretly donated $1.5 million to Scott Walker's reelection campaign in a way that drew a lot of scrutiny a couple of years ago. I mean, so uh, what do you want to know more about? Yeah, let's begin at the beginning. I mean, you mentioned environmental crimes first. Like, what did he, yeah. what did he do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, a lot of things. But most famously, back in 1997, he was fined. $1.7 million by the state of Wisconsin for violating environmental regulations a total of 21 times. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the like stories that you'll read about if you look into John Menard Jr. is leading up to getting busted for all of these environmental regulations. He was, he was actually caught red-handed transporting poisonous, hazardous, arsenic, and chromium-contaminated wood ash in his personal pickup <laughs> to his home <laughs> so he could put it in his household garbage oh. rather than pay for commercial hazmat disposal. Wow. So, I mean, he was just like uh, toting this poison <laughs> home from Menards. Just like, Man. I'm going to save a few bucks here. This is stuff that causes lung cancer. And he was just... Trying trucking it home secretly, yeah. yeah, trucking it home and then putting it out with the trash. Wow, that's uh, a you know, like I mean, he's he's worth like ten many billions of dollars. I don't know, roughly ten billion dollars. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was the it was it's the prince. <laughs> it's not the money. It's the principle of the thing. Freedom well, means being able to truck home toxic sludge in the back of your pickup truck and throw it in the municipal trash system. I guess. 
I guess, you know, like I'll explain this falling out that he had with these other friends later on the segment, but like he's been accused by other people of like never carrying cash with him and always making other people. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. He's just like a classic chiseler, which is just, I mean, it's amazing to me. I think like the only thing that's really attractive to me about the idea of having a lot of money is being able to pay for everything, you know? Yeah. Like being able to like take care of everybody around. But the classic buy your mom a house uh, kind of. be great. And to buy all your friends everything all the time. I can't imagine having that much money and being like, you pick up the tab. Like, have you heard about these these small towns that have been getting stiffed by campaigns for uh, police services? Like Trump is a big offender. Yeah, yeah. Actually was an offender too. But it's just like, especially with Trump, who's like, has all the money in the world, he could easily cut these towns a $10,000 check, whatever he owes them. Right. But he's like, no, I'm just going to fuck them. Yeah. I think that would be better. Well, I mean, he's like, you know, famously done that with contractors for his entire career, right? I know. But it's like, why have money? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, th- you know, that's a, that's a kind of, you know, uh, big question that we've touched on a couple of times, right? Like, what is the, what's the specific like desire structure of billionaires, right? Because there's a point at which they aren't spending the money anymore, right? Like they're just accumulating, right? And it's this drive to accumulation that for non-rich people, I think is puzzling. It's puzzling to me. I think it's puzzling to most people. Like, what are you doing? Why just enjoy yourself? Why are you wasting your time? You don't like, I don't get it. Um, and so I don't know if we will, I don't know if we'll ever be able to access that dimension of the particular like mental disorder that billionaires have. Um, but if anything, you know, like in some ways it's pitiable, right. To, to imagine that vast emptiness that must open beneath them every day when they wake up, uh, (laughs) to drive them to just abuse and, and harm people and cause suffering in the world to make a tiny bit more money. Um, I mean, like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty dark. Yeah. It's deeply sad, Yeah, (laughs) but it's also like, like more to the point, it's just enraging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's both though. It's a complicated set of feelings that we're like encountering here on the show. Okay. So that's the kind of guy John Menard Jr. is, I think. Yeah. Uh, In 2005, Menard Incorporated was fined $2 million for illegally discharging pollutants into Wisconsin waterways. Here's a good one. In 2011, Menard was fined again for illegally dumping a pallet of herbicide containers on a parking island outside of one of the stores. <laughs> so they, just, they just had some like toxic pallet and they were just like, eh, just ditch it in the parking lot. Wow. <laughs> It'll be cool. Yeah. That came back to haunt them. That was a much, much smaller fine, but still just like sort of jaw dropping. So I read in a 2007 Milwaukee Magazine article that uh, I guess as of that date, Menards has had or had had more run-ins with the Department of Natural Resources than any other Wisconsin company. Wow. And have been caught violating air and, and water pollution laws as far back as 1976. I, that is like so astounding. Just horrible. And, and just- Like there is a lot of mining- Right. I, there's really not much energy extraction. I was actually I was looking at uh, fracking maps the other day and, and Wisconsin 
Minnesota actually has zero fracking wells. Wisconsin has very few. And there's, you know, like they're not digging coal or things like, like, but there is a lot of mining. There is a lot of industry. There's a lot of other stuff that you would expect to be like yeah. to have run-ins with the DNR more often and get get fined more often than a hardware store. <laughs> like I you know, like yeah, that's I know. so crazy. Like well, I don't know. Maybe you're still at the point where you're where you're still willing to to shop at Menards, but I'm going to keep on moving through some of those things <laughs> get you around the other side. Um, you want to hear about some labor violations? Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, but this is pretty unreal. So a few years ago, it came to light that certain Menards employees had contracts that were in violation of federal labor law, specifically certain manager contracts sometimes included things like a 60% pay cut if a store became unionized and that's like a really punitive, petty, punitive measures like $5 fines if managers failed to inspect employees lunch boxes for stolen merchandise before they left work. <laughs> um, and there's like a long list of fines that are written into some of these contracts that many of which are just obviously illegal. Yeah. I don't know um, how you think you could get away with that. <laughs> I think he did for a while. That's the thing. Like the world is just so sketchy. <laughs> <You can> just... <laughs> wow. um, he's a major donor to an anti-union program funded by coke undoubtedly um not a friend to labor not a friend to labor at all what about you want to hear about tax evasion or you want to hear about sexual misconduct well you know i feel like i i'm more or less unless it's some sort of egregious form of tax evasion i think it's sort of par for the course uh for these billionaires that they're evading taxes well it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting specific example of it all right let's hear it Uh, a court found in 1998 that he paid himself a grossly excessive salary as part of a scheme (laughs) to avoid paying income tax so that might not sound like terribly surprising but I wasn't familiar with this until I read about it. Apparently, executive pay is one of these things that regulators look really closely at Mm -hmm. because salaries only get taxed as personal income, whereas dividends and bonuses get taxed as after-tax corporate income Mm. as well, which means that the company can potentially save money uh, if they're compensating people through salaries as opposed to bonuses. Mm. So sometimes awarding dis, uh, disproportionately high salaries is a way of disguising bonuses and sheltering this income from the dividend tax. Mm. So in this particular case... So instead of a bonus, the, you get a massive pay raise and then maybe an on-paper pay cut or something to sort of mask that what it actually is is a bonus? So... Like in this particular case, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but this year in 1998, he paid himself something like $20 million. Mm -hmm. And then like the next most highly paid employee in the company was making like 60 or (laughs) 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 70,000. And so they were like, wait, what? (laughs) What's going on? Um, And so, you know. He's cooking the books. There's some book cooking, you know, pretty clearly. Uh, he, he got in some trouble for that. Okay. So, uh, here's the more kind of sort of, sort of lurid drama in 2013, he was, he was sued for extortion, assault and battery by one of his former business partners. So this woman, her name was Tommy Sue Hilbert. 
and her complaint alleged that he pressured her to have sex with him and his wife and a menage a trois. When she refused, she alleges that Menard retaliated by convincing a Wisconsin court to remove her husband from managing a private equity firm that Menard and Hilbert had founded together. So, okay, um, a little bit of backstory here. Tommy Sue Hilbert is 25 years younger than Steve Hilbert, her husband, and they met at a party where Steve was a guest and where Tommy Sue had just jumped out of a birthday cake. So a quick question. Were they wearing masks at this party by any chance? Were they wearing like, you know. Is this like an eyes wide shirt? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I don't know, man. I wasn't there. I wish I had been. Sounds like a killer party. (laughs) Tammy Sue Hilbert. Tommy Sue. Tommy Sue. So, okay. Here's the wrinkle you never saw coming. Melania Trump got weirdly caught in the crossfire. Uh, she'd been working with this holding company called New Sunshine. It was owned by, by Menard and Hilbert's no private Sunshine. equity firm. And yeah, New Sunshine was supposed to market her line of skincare products, which here's an aside, apparently was supposed to include, quote, caviar infused anti-aging creams. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Um, yeah. so, so, uh, I remember we were talking a couple episodes ago about the island off the coast of Florida. Oh yeah. The trash Fisher Island. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fisher Island. This seems like something that they would have laid in at Fisher. Island. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, like the, ho- the, the hotel will have a spa in the bottom and you can go get like a, take a bath in a caviar cream or something. Yeah. It's yeah. just the idea that the product is just rich for the sake of rich. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. So anyway, when things went South with Menard and Hilbert, Menard canceled New Sunshine's contract with Melania, and then she filed a $50 million damages claim against Menard. They ultimately settled, but uh, this basically wound up torching Menard's relationship with the Trumps. And so they used to kind of kick it at Mar-a-Lago and had been very friendly, and now they're not. So I don't know, like rich people drama. Maybe since they can't go to Mar-a-Lago anymore, they now actually hang out at Fisher Island. Like, that's a distinct possibility. Uh, It is a distinct possibility. Okay, so our summer vacation is uh, Martins Beach, California, uh, and (laughs) also Fisher Island, Florida. Yeah. Oh yeah, we already talked about this though. We need a GoFundMe page to to raise money for the helicopter. Yeah, we can't really we can't really afford to actually get <laughs> onto Fisher Island because you need to take a helicopter. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I'll, I'm going to create the GoFundMe this week. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm sure people will be about it. About it. <laughs> um, okay, so I just wanted to conclude the segment by mentioning the fact that earlier this year, UW Eau Claire which is where Menard went to college, awarded him an honorary doctorate degree, ah. which just strikes me as so Dr. Menard. craven and shameful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's what happens in this world. If you pollute enough streams and <laughs> right. evade enough taxes. And yeah, what did he, what did he get a doctorate in? Labor violations. Like destroying Wisconsin? Is that like? <laughs> I mean, on the face of it, the world seems like a horrible place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
so we need to rate this guy. So so just to remind our listeners, every episode we rate our billionaires on a scale of one to ten. On the David Koch uh, Memorial the- Asset Liquidation Index, uh, it is an it is a measurement. It's a scale of how urgent it is that we liquidate the assets of any particular billionaire. Uh, so I would I would <clears throat> I would argue that John Menard Jr. is a, an urgent case. There's yeah. an urgent need to liquidate these For assets. For sure. Yeah. And my kind of gut feeling is that he's close to the top, but he's not at the top. I, w- I want to give him an eight. Yeah, I like I like that number. I don't, you know, like I think that to get into nine or ten category, like or the nine or ten range, you have to have like a more direct connection to a body count. You know, like uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there's a body count. I'm sure we could like you know uh, draw some indirect connections, right? Like with the pollution, lung cancer. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but there are a lot but, but of people yeah. out there uh, who uh, who have just very directly killed people. Uh, so yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I think I think he's up there though. I think eight is good. Um, All right, he's got an eight. My, I agree. Yeah. He's got an eight. Wonderful. He has an eight. All right, Chad. So who are you doing today? I completely forget who you're doing. Yeah, uh, I'm talking about Jeff Green. Um, Jeff, oh, yeah. you, you probably have not heard of Jeff Green, uh, in, no matter where you live, unless you live in uh, Ventura, California, where his business is based. Uh, otherwise, he's not that he's not that well known. Um, he he's not even really a, a billionaire in in the sense that a lot of people are billionaires that we talk about. Like he. He has one source of income or one source of wealth, uh, which is stock mm-hmm. in his own company, uh, which is called uh, the Trade Desk. And so, so he's a paper billionaire. He's a he's a billionaire on paper, yeah. And and this and and really only for about a year, uh, he took the Trade Desk public in uh, 2016, and it wasn't one of these huge IPOs where he instantly became a billionaire. Uh, it was actually a, a relatively small IPO, but since then the stock price of the Trade Desk has increased a thousand percent. Okay, and okay, we're so, going to okay. talk about why that is. What is the Trade Desk, and why do, has it skyrocketed? Okay, so uh, on its face, very boring. The Trade Desk. Uh, it sounds like it's stock trading, but it's not at all. It's an advertising company. Uh, they do mar- micro-targeted ads uh, online. They uh, they're trying to compete with Google and. Facebook, um, <clears throat> Google, and Facebook in the in the online advertising industry are referred to as walled gardens um, because they have a duopoly on uh, the the online advertising market. Right, like that. They're they're just almost everything is handled. Google and Facebook control more than anyone else combined. Yeah, by far, by far. Right. Uh, um. And uh, uh, we're going to get to – and so the, the plan of the Trade Desk is to kind of break through those walled gardens and open up the market to more competitors. And we're going to get to how they're doing that uh, in a minute. But uh, uh, the, if, you, if you sort of look up Jeff Green online, uh, one of the first things you notice is that he has a ton of videos where he's talking. And most of them are about putting ads on streaming television, uh, specifically putting ads on Netflix. 
God, that sounds like a horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just awful, right? It's like the only good thing about Netflix is that it doesn't have ads, right? Um, but uh, uh, the CFO of Netflix joined their board last year, um, and uh, uh, they have this new technology. So, like, the idea is to develop this technology whereby your streaming TV is now uh, interfacing with all of your other devices. So, if you do a search for uh you know uh boots you will get ads on netflix for boots right uh or you know that's that kind of yeah stuff. i see so i'm gonna play a quick so clip more, of him more and more targeting yeah right streaming television is kind of underexploited, right in the sense that uh it's not really integrated with all of the other targeted advertising uh that you get um i'm gonna play a quick clip of jeff green talking about putting ads on netflix so here we go okay let's do it Four or five years ago, I came home and told my kids, the CFO of Netflix is going to join our board. And my son's visceral reaction, who was about 10 years old at the time, said, oh, no, please don't tell me you're going to put ads on Netflix, Dad. And I think his reaction basically summarizes the way most people respond when they hear that Netflix may have to put ads on their site. But I'd like you to consider that it might be actually a very good thing. And you're actually going to want it. And here's why. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do want to play the last part of the clip, but I'll pause it there. There's like 10 seconds left. I mean, just a couple of things stand out. Hard for you to wrap your mind like, around that, huh? Like, why? Yeah. <laughs> the first is the use of the, the phrase have to. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, the, like there's, there's only one option for Netflix at this point. Um, yeah. The other... The other thing is him trying to convince us that this is what we want, that we are going to want this. Yeah. Seems like a pretty fraudulent argument. Don't you want to hear his argument for why you're going to want it? Yeah, okay. I know, but I'm already certain that I am not going to be convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Here we go. What if you only saw one ad or something like, like it per commercial break, and as a result of seeing that ad, you were able to double the amount of content that you had access to. And also, what if that ad was highly relevant to you? That's why you're going to want it. You only have to watch one ad or something like one ad, which means many ads, <laughs> per commercial break, right? So like, this isn't like, um, you know, you, you watch like a couple of ads and then, and then that, that's over, right? It's more like traditional television where there are commercial breaks for every everything that you're watching. Um, right. But it's really relevant to you, Joe. Well, this is this is something I want to talk a little bit more about. I mean, like this idea that advertising being relevant to you is something that is in any way desirable. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I have a big question. Like, I mean, if we polled the American public and asked them the question, how much do you like Relevant advertising. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, like, z- zero people in my life ever have yeah. liked that. Right? Like, like uh, uh, do you like advertising? No. Okay. All right. I know you don't like it now. But what if the advertising knew what you Googled for the past week? What if, what if, <laughs> what if the advertising- I actually like that less. Yeah, I know. Right? It feels <laughs> invasive. It's horrible, one. right? Like, you know, two, I feel like it's like, it's kind of, especially- 
in a world where you use your computer at work and sometimes have to plug it into projection systems and sometimes find yourself Googling things and browsers in front of people, it feels like you're revealing things about your personal life. Yeah. Like in ways that I don't, I would much rather have them be like yes, advertising hula hoops to me. I want you know? my relationship with advertisers to be as anonymous as possible, right? I, I prefer... Yeah irrelevant ads uh because you know like yeah. I, i'm not watching them either right. way right like, i'm just like yeah doing my best to tune it out of my mind but they are affecting you yeah. whether you know it or not yeah but i mean that's it, another reason a, why i want them to be more irrelevant it's such a because weird... the more relevant they are the more chance that they'll actually wind up and like, right right persuading me to buy <laughs> yeah, something yeah, <laughs> yeah. right <laughs> Like I don't want that. God, that's so infuriating. This person is Listen, really, really infuriating. I know you don't like the uh, re-education camp now, but what if the re-education camp really spoke to your own individual interests? I, I, <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. But I, a lot of advertising people do that. Like a lot of advertising people seem to convince themselves that the thing that people don't like about advertising is that it's not relevant enough to their interests. I think they have to do that because at, at, at like – in their the core of their being, they know that every day their job is to get up and go out into the world and annoy people, right? And so they and so they have a vacant existence. Yes. And in order to make themselves feel less vacant, yeah, they 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 convince themselves of this. I know you might absurd. find it a little bit irritating right now, but it, we're working on that problem, and we're going to make it so relevant to you. And, and you're not going to going to really like it. You're going to find such good products, right? <laughs> like, um, yeah. And then we're like, we're watching these ads to unlock content. So like what it means is putting up fake walls on Netflix to block content that you can't access unless you watch ads. So, I mean, the question is, is, is bringing advertising to Netflix going to infuse Netflix with capital to make it possible for them to produce shows that are amazing that they wouldn't otherwise be able to produce? Well, that's what he's saying. Like that's. Yeah. That's the most compelling part of the argument. Yeah. I don't believe it. Uh, I believe that it's going to be the same. Right. HBO has been operating on a subscription model for 30 years or so. Um, and they make the best shit. Yeah. So, <laughs> it's like, so yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but Netflix might need to do this. Yeah. It might have Well, that's to. what I mean. That's, that's There's no other that's choice. That's what he says, right? Yeah. Um, I know. But I mean, how? that's just demonstrably false. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I, okay. Yeah. What else, what else do we want to know? Okay. We want to know how this business works. So, well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm done with streaming TV. I wanted to bring that up just cause I think it's, it's funny. And that's the, that's like the, the forward facing or public facing part of their business that they really enjoy talking about what they don't enjoy talking about as much. At least there's not as many videos about it. It's not exactly hidden or anything uh, is where they uh, where he made his real money and why the stock has gone up a thousand percent in the last year. Hmm. So I want to preface that, though, by saying, let me play one more clip of, of Jeff Green talking about his own values and the, and the values of his company. Okay, sure. Because um, yeah, I think we need some of this information to build a foundation for what comes next. Okay, play the clip. If you get rid of relevant ads, then you might get rid of the majority of journalism. If the New York Times or any journalistic outlet shows relevant ads, they're going to get a 5 or $10 CPM. Let's call it $10. But if you take away the relevance, well, then you're going to cut that CPM 
that is essentially revenue to the New York Times from $10 to $5. It's just not possible for many of the struggling journalistic outlets to stay in business if we cut their revenues in half. Dude, so, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't want to cut, cut. No, in. go ahead. I mean, I'll just say that this is just really, that's just an infuriating argument. Yeah. Just knowing that there are other models out there to su support uh, sustainable investigative reporting. Yeah. You know, we could we could subsidize that industry in a way that has nothing to do with advertising that would be much, much better for a variety of really obvious reasons. For right? democracy, for the thing, the, yeah. for the specific things that he's talking about valuing there, namely um, uh, a, 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 you know, vigorous uh, uh a vigorous journalistic ecosystem, right? That serves a democratic right. function, right? Like, and the, just the fact that he points to our advertising as being the savior of that, yeah, just rubs me just horribly. It's just so schemy, yeah, and just not only that it could be the savior, but it is the only possible, right? Like, it's impossible for any. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's just right. so sure of himself. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, I really don't like this guy. No, he's he's <laughs> he sucks. Um. Oh, so God. basically, he's saving democracy by providing a sustainable funding model for the free press. Uh, now, I want to introduce you to the main part of the Trade Desk's business, uh, and I'll do that with one more clip. I promise I won't get carried away with clips. Just one more clip here uh, of him talking. So I, I want to be super clear what we're after today. Uh, today, uh, we're, we're launching... A, a product that makes it possible for brands that are outside of China to take spend into China. And to do that, we had to do a lot of work. And I won't bore you with all those, uh, all those details, but it takes two or three years to, to, to have any chance to do something in China. Basically, the entire internet uh, was replicated in China because you're on the other side of a firewall. Uh, so everything has to be replicated. Okay. So I want to pause right there. We're about halfway through the clip and, I, and we're getting to the important part, but I want to make sure that everybody is on the same page in terms of what's happening. This is Jeff yeah. Green's announcement, uh, sort of, you know, like a Steve Jobs Apple talk, right? He's giving one of those talks where he's announcing uh, this uh, uh, opening up of a new market in China where they're going to work with uh, large Chinese internet companies, namely Alibaba, Tencent, and Baidu, which is, and Baidu is basically uh, the Chinese equivalent of Google. Moving micro-targeted advertising, uh, ad buying into China is the main part of their business. I want to, I just want to hear like, so, well, why aren't Facebook and Google, the largest uh, micro-targeted ad companies doing this? I want to, I want to play one more clip that'll give us some insight into uh, why Jeff Green is able to do this, but those companies are not. Okay. Everything has to be replicated. We had to rebuild our technology there. We had to develop process uh, to operate that technology on a totally different internet, which is basically what the China internet is. Uh, um, the entire experience is different uh, uh, there. And then you also have to just make certain that there's lots of editorial control. Uh, so meaning that every creative needs to be submitted uh, to the government and registered. We have to go through careful uh, creative audit and review process. And we as a company are doing that on behalf of every one of our clients. We put a lot at risk to make certain that we do it, that we do it right. And so we've, we've taken years to make certain that we do that well. 
so what's going on is he's talking about um, why they are able to operate in China when other companies aren't is because they're working directly with the government. As he was uh, mm-hmm. as he was pointing out there, every single piece of what he calls creative, in other words, every ad uh, has to be submitted to a review process by the Chinese government. And they have developed a relationship with the Chinese government and said that we will uh, obey all of your uh, censorship laws and we will make sure that all of the ads that we submit to you conform to those censorship laws. So when he's talking about operating behind a firewall in China, what he's referring to is the the Great Firewall of China, um, which mm-hmm. is the system of policies and technologies that the Chinese government has put in place to censor uh, the Internet, namely uh, censor information about uh, human rights abuses and internment camps, information about about ethnic minorities, about religion, to things like uh, air quality, right? Information about air quality is is censored in China. And so what he's developing is a system that's just 100% complicit. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. And, I, and you know, okay. Yeah. Somebody's going to do it, right? Like, so, you know, but like it's uh, what I want to point to is like the hypocrisy between this, like I am saving the, the democratic function of journalism uh, right. with my company yeah. in one breath and right. then turning around and being like, we will comply with every uh, everything that the, the Chinese government would like us to do. And the reason that Google and Facebook are not operating there is because they have chosen not to. Just last year, there was a huge protest by Google workers. Uh, they they wrote an open letter, like more than a thousand people signed it. Uh, whenever uh, Google was considering moving back into China, they left in 2010 specifically because of the censorship activities that the Chinese government was imposing on them. They were basically said to Google, either censor your search engine or leave. And Google tried to get around it by redirecting searches to Hong Kong where, you know, it wasn't censored. And But then the employees re- re- revolted. Right. So Google sort of like left China and then they started kind of surreptitiously uh, developing a an, an app uh, called Project Dragonfly in hmm. 2016. And then uh, the employees at Google found out about it and they protested and uh, and wrote this open letter. And so Google had Google was like, OK, fine, we, we won't do it. Right. Um, and so, like, you know, there is a very, you know, like present and public debate happening over the degree to which and, and whether uh, companies should at all participate in the, the Chinese government censorship of the Internet. And so and Google is coming down on one side of it and Facebook and this guy's coming down on the other. Yeah. And in the same breath, it's like I'm helping to create free and open democratic society by promoting jur- journalism and yeah. what have you. Yeah. I mean, you don't get to make that argument. No. I'm so, no. I'm so no. you know, it's like <laughs> no. it's like we're dealing with the impeachment hearings this week and I've tuned in and out a little bit. But like we're just in a world of, of just incessant bullshit argumentation. Yeah. I wish there was a mechanism that that could punish people for <laughs> all of the bullshit arguments that they're making. Like you shouldn't be allowed to do it. Yeah. I mean, I like the the 
The biggest irony, right, is that the example that he uses in, uh, for his uh, I'm saving journalism argument is the New York Times. The New York Times is indefinitely banned in China. Right? Like you can't access the New York Times in China. And it's unbelievable. <laughs> so, yeah, it's unbelievable. Right. And yet he's like and he's just like up there swaggering. Yeah. Feeling really cheerful about his ideas. Yeah. None of this is to say that Facebook and, and Google are uh, ethical leaders or, or anything like that. It's just to point out Jeff Green's hypocrisy and also to point out the fact that um, that China is uh, very well known for uh, hacking the accounts and otherwise surveilling uh, people who uh, journalists, people who advocate for human rights, uh, activists of all kinds, the surveillance techniques that are used uh, for micro targeted advertising are going to be operationalized by the Chinese government. I mean, there's no way around it. Just recently, right, like at the same time, Jeff Green is moving into China. China passed a new law requiring any inter internet companies operating in China to keep a log of all users' activities and, if asked, hand over a 60-day recorded activity log to authorities. So when he's talking about being compliant with the Chinese government, he's also talking about handing over all data on specific users to the Chinese government anytime he's asked. Um, it's just amazing. Yeah. Uh, so – the the Chinese internet is very interesting. And like one of the things that is happening, we we're already talking about this idea of walled gardens, right? Like this idea that Google and Facebook collect data about you and then use that to advertise on their own platforms. And it creates this kind of closed space where competitors can't get in because they don't have access to the data. Uh, China's kind of doing that with its whole internet. Like uh, so, Baidu, the 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 Google of China, the the major search engine that accounts for like eighty percent of Chinese searches. Now, mm -hmm. uh, a media theorist recently did an experiment like Baidu mainly redirects to other websites that are also owned by Baidu, right? So like the Chinese oh, internet yeah. is kind of becoming this self-referential system where search results in search engines only refer you to pre-approved sites that are uh, that have been through the government um, uh, censorship process. Cause it's, that's pretty, that's pretty interesting. Right. So there's just rather than playing no whack-a-mole and trying to like yeah. censor every new thing that pops up or whatever, you just close the, the borders, right? Like you just close right. down, uh, uh, the, the internet. So it just becomes this kind of self-referential system. Um, and, and that gives me an opportunity to, uh, play one more clip, um, that I think that you will find entertaining. Uh, this is from okay, cool. Tim and Eric, uh, who foresaw the Chinese internet a decade ago. Hi, friends. I'm Tim Heidecker here with my good friend, Eric Wareheim, here to tell you about an exciting new product from Cinco Technology. That's right, Tim. It's called the internet, and it's a fresh new way to check out sites, buy clothing, and surf music. And it's all located on this tiny CD-ROM. <laughs> you bet, Eric. You know, my favorite thing about the internet is that it's 100% secure. Wait a second, Tim. What about all my e-worms and my email viruses? <laughs> well, Eric, you can kiss your e-virus problems goodbye because the entire internet is located on this CD-ROM. You're not connected to anything, so no one can connect to you. <laughs> I love it. It's uh, internet, I-N-N-E-R-N-E-T-T-E, -T -T -E, right? Uh, the classic. Anyway, that's Jeff Green. Uh, he's helping the Chinese government create an internet uh, that... Uh, is disconnected from everything else. So what do we rate this guy? I don't know. You know, like there's a, there's like 
I don't know, a substantial chance that his business will just fail. Calling back to, to our news segment, you know, like at some point, Trump may send out a tweet and uh, and the Chinese government might just kick out all American Internet companies. Right. <laughs> like, who knows? Right. Like uh, the, the harm that he uh, can do is, because he's just getting started uh, or the harm that he has done rather is pretty limited. I don't know, like a six, maybe even a five. What do you think? I just find him so annoying. Extremely annoying. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, in terms of the scale, probably a five. All right. In terms of just me wanting to tase him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A 10 on the desire to tase scale. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. (laughs) He sucks, but limited reach. So we'll give him a five. Should we should we choose billionaires for next time? Uh, or yeah, we gotta we we gotta do it. We gotta do okay. it. Okay, because we we have to give ourselves an assignment, give some people things to look forward to. So let's go ahead and spin the wheel and see who we get for next episode. Okay. All right. Uh, the first one is number 218 on our list, H. Fisk Johnson. Okay. H. Fisk what, Johnson is- What's this person's deal? Chairman and CEO of S.C. Johnson, uh, the cleaning products company, uh, Windex Off Pledge. Okay. So uh, as I'm looking at this, one thing I'm noticing is that there are a number of people in this family and they all have the same amount of money. $3.8 billion. So are we going to do another family episode? Let's, let's, let's do another Let's family treat episode. them as a family. I feel like they're not like huge billionaires and, and they're all part of the same company. And I think I imagine that SC Johnson will be uh, fun to talk about. Um, well, if you'll remember, I had to do like all of the many Pritzkers. All right. So I'm going to make you do the Johnson. The John- okay. I, I would love to talk about a cleaning products empire. Um Okay. All right. Let's do it again. That's, that's going to be on you. Well, here's before we do the next thing, I have to I have to jump in and say, uh, I was talking to my friend and neighbor and colleague Matthew Taylor, who's a loyal li- listener to the show, and he is so loyal that he listens all the way through to the final ending segment when we pick the billionaires for next episode. And the fact that we only play the roulette sound effect once infuriates. Me. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> And yeah, he has made this. It known kind of to infuriates me, me too. I, I thought we were doing people a favor, but apparently, he wants us to commit. Maybe there's other people out there that feel the same. So, uh, going forward, we're going to play the damn thing twice. Yeah, here we go. And number two is. Joseph Lamont, L-I-E-M-A-N-D-T. Um, I'm looking at his Forbes page right now, and uh, he's wearing a tuxedo in his picture. Um, he is the founder of ESW Capital, an investment firm 
that purchases software companies. Uh, yeah. I'm beginning to wish that I hadn't given you the Johnson. Yeah, this sounds That's super boring. Nice. He founded Trilogy Software. By age 27, he was on the cover of Forbes magazine. <laughs> All right. I'm sure I'll find something yeah. interesting about him. Yeah. All right. Uh, that sounds good. So I, I want to take this opportunity to thank everybody for listening uh, up until this point, especially those of you who have stuck with us from the beginning for this whole season. It means a lot that you're out there supporting us and the show. We we really look forward to coming back in 2020 with season two and a lot of new episodes and content, and hopefully we'll keep things lively and interesting. Definitely want to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday. Chad, do you have anything you want to say to the folks out there? Um, no. Um, yeah, just uh, follow us on Twitter, like and subscribe. Do all of the interactions uh, that you can do in the digital world uh, to help us out. And thank you very much uh, for sticking with us through season one. Awesome. See you guys in 2020. Bye.